Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. I don't know where you are, but here in Southwest Michigan, it is freezing and we are buried in snow. We all know that spring is around the corner, but right now, what a good time to snuggle up and listen to a podcast. So I hope you'll enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Scott Grant. Dr. Grant is an academic primary care pediatrician and hospitalist working in Southeast Michigan. He completed his medical school in El Paso, Texas, and was a pediatric resident and chief resident at Phoenix Children's Hospital in Arizona. When his wife matched to a residency in Michigan, he transitioned to a hybrid role doing both primary care and hospital medicine. Since moving to Michigan, their family has welcomed two children, and becoming a father has fundamentally shifted the way he teaches and practices medicine. His primary clinical interest is in behavioral health, especially the interaction of childhood adversity and trauma with developmental and behavioral outcomes. He advocates for trauma-informed, resiliency-focused care in every aspect of care. Dr. Grant serves on the Michigan American Academy of Pediatrics Government Affairs and Advocacy Committee and participates with the Michigan ACE Initiative. He recently took on a role as the District 5 Catch Facilitator with the AAP, which helps pediatricians engage with their communities more directly through grant-supported community partnerships. Since becoming a father himself, he has developed a particular focus on supporting his fellow dads. He recently launched the Docs to Dads podcast to help dads find the joy of fatherhood and encourage dads to actively participate in the health and well-being of their families and communities. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Scott Grant. Hey, Scott, how are you? Hi, Leah. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. And before we get started, though, I wanted to have you share a little bit about how you got into pediatrics and particularly hospital medicine. Sure. I'm a little bit of an outlier, I think, in the sense that I knew I wanted to be a pediatrician before I knew that meant I had to go to medical school. I got sort of started working with kids as like a teen helper in the in my church's preschool classroom and just sort of knew that I wanted to be involved with teaching and helping kids in some way and then became really fascinated by medicine and sort of put those things together into being a, a pediatrician. And I thought about a couple of other things as I was going through medical school, family medicine, OBGYN, really interested with my public health background and sort of uh, maternal infant health. And so I've thought a little bit about that, but my heart always came back to pediatrics. And then I did my residency at Phoenix Children's Hospital, uh, which is a large sort of tertiary care hospital and just sort of fell in love with the complexity of patients in the hospital and being able to sort of manage that and the sort of unique role you get to play as a hospitalist with sort of helping parents and families navigate through that you know, one thing I talk about with our, our residents all the time is that we're in the hospital every day. So it feels very normal to us to be there and to sort of understand how the processes work. But for most of the families that are in the hospital, it's the worst day of their life. And so 
keeping that perspective is really important and something I really sort of enjoy helping families navigate so they can kind of understand the processes a little bit better and, and just kind of make that day slightly less terrible for them if I can. And I always found that aspect of, of being in the hospital uh, really special. Well, I am super grateful to hospitalists. Honestly, it was the best day of my life when I didn't have to do inpatient anymore because I was like, give me a kid with depression or constipation, but I don't want to manage a DKA. So <laughs> thank you. I'm one of the rare people I think that still does both. I, I still do some primary care as well. And I have not yet been able to decide that I like one better than the other, but I, I'm one of the few folks left that still gets to do both. And I'm very thankful for that. It's certainly appreciated on my end. And I really like the insight that you have about, you know, helping families and sort of seeing into their perspective. And and I know, you know, you and I both have this interest around adverse childhood experiences. And I would put it out there that being in the hospital can be an adverse event for a lot of kids and families. But one of the things about ACE is I think that we've moved beyond just identifying it is now talking about building resilience. And how did you first learn about ACEs and resilience? What was your encounter with that? Great. So I first came to know about ACEs through the TED Talk that was done by Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who since has become the Surgeon General for the state of California, Dr. Sarah Bodie, who's now at Nationwide Children's, who sort of got me hooked on uh, behavioral health and mental health and kind of talking about ACEs. And so she sort of showed me this TED talk for the first time during my uh, during my intern year. And I just was hooked. I was so, it just appealed to the public health professional in me that there was this sort of larger impact that we could have if we didn't have to wait until problems arise, but we could actually go back and try to do some things on the front end to sort of prevent some of these exposures, or at least buffer the effects of some of these exposures, it sort of spoke to my soul. And so I've been hooked ever since then about how can we talk to families about this issue and how can we sort of integrate the discussion around ACEs and toxic stress, and more importantly, you know, safe, stable, nurturing relationships and emotional regulation and some of the sort of positive skills and positive experiences into our anticipatory guidance with families and, and those kinds of things. I love this. And I also came across Nadine Burke Harris and I was fortunate enough to hear her speak and she is a powerhouse. And, and I would agree, it sort of, it was like this missing puzzle piece, like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. And, and so, yeah, I was, I was hooked as well. Well, talk a little bit about for listeners, what's the difference between tolerable versus toxic stress? And what's that look like in the work you do? Just to double down on what you're doing more about ACEs science and tolerable and toxic stresses, I think that we all have this intuitive sense that the things that happen to us in childhood have a long-term impact and will affect the way that we, it will affect our behaviors, it will affect our health, it will affect the way that we interact with people, it'll affect the way that we interact with our spouses and our children and, and everyone in our lives. But the thing about this it gives us sort of a language to express that in, in a more meaningful way. And so one of the most important keys uh, that you're keying in on here is this difference between tolerable stress and toxic stress. And the exposure, the stress itself, in a lot of cases is, is essentially the same. But what the research we have tells us is that the primary difference is the presence of that 
buffering relationship. And for a child, it, it's almost always an adult who fills that role of the buffering relationship. Now, now we use the phrase safe, stable, and nurturing relationship. Uh, this sort of helps the child cope with whatever that negative stressor is and helps them sort of re-regulate back to some sense of normalcy or help them cope with whatever loss might have taken place. And so the presence of that person becomes the most important thing. And so the way that I think about that and the way that I interact with families in the clinic and families in, in the hospital and, and with other projects that I'm working on now is sort of, if that's the most important variable, if the variable of being that safe, stable, nurturing relationship for a child is the thing that buffers the effect of the trauma or of the adversity, then what can we do as pediatricians, as a community, as a society to help more and more adults have the tools in their toolbox to be that safe, stable, nurturing relationship for the kids in their life, whether that's me as a pediatrician or as a father or or, or moms or aunts or grandmas or, or whoever else, teachers. There's so many adults that kids interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, what are we doing to try to help equip all of those adults with the tools that they need to help the kids in their lives and be that buffering relationship? Well, and I spoke with Dr. Andy Garner on the podcast in episode 56. And for those listeners who really want to dive into the science and kind of the whole background on that, that's a, a great episode. And, you know, again, he talks about safe, stable, nurturing relationships, again, as being the most important thing, as you said. And so what's that translation into what you really do? So I'm I'm sitting here with a family and there's a child and I know there's a trauma background, maybe for the child, maybe for the family. I mean, it can be multi-generational. So what do you actually do? What's that look like in the work that you do in the clinic and in the hospital, especially in the hospital? Because boy, that can be a trigger for, you know, people being on guard. Yeah. And a lot of times it's it's easier and harder in the hospital, easier in the sense that sometimes the trauma is very acute, like it's the thing that brought the kid into the hospital. And so it's sort of front and center. And there's not sometimes this like awkward needing to like dance or ask some other questions and kind of build up to this question of like, was there some kind of trauma because front and center in our discussion, uh, but harder in the sense that those wounds for the child are sometimes very fresh or at least freshly reopened. Um, and in some senses, we're, we're reopening old wounds of of the parents as well. And so it does kind of create this interesting challenge when you're having that conversation with parents in the hospital. It really will come down to, and this is true in the clinic and in the hospital, one sort of normalizing the experience as much as you can, sort of talking to parents about, you know, it's, it's going to be normal for you to have some emotional dysregulation as a result of this. And you're going to feel like you're not in control sometimes. And certainly your child is going to feel that way as well. And so then sometimes I'll, I'll talk about, depending on the needs of the family, we'll talk a little bit about maybe emotional co-regulation. So helping that child understand in a developmentally appropriate way what has happened to them and sort of what the feelings they're having around that are. And, and having parents sometimes have to like give the words for those feelings. Are they feeling angry? Are they feeling frustrated? Are they feeling sad? Are they feeling betrayed, right? Sometimes there's these very, you know, complex feelings that that the kids are having. Uh, but again, a lot of times 
first parents have to figure out their own emotions and figure out how to regulate themselves. And so sometimes my role in that acute setting as a as a hospitalist and certainly also in the clinic is sort of just trying to get a, a sense of where's the where the parents at, where's the family at with everything that's been happening and are they still coping? Right. One of the things that we see, you know, we've seen this a lot in the in the setting of of COVID is we have so many patients who have lost a parent and, and frankly, we have a lot of patients who have lost both of their parents, unfortunately, as a result of the COVID pandemic. And so, you know, how is the parent that's left behind to take care of the family able to help their children cope with the loss of the parents if they themselves haven't coped with the loss of their partner? And and this gets bigger and bigger as you consider extended families, right? We have so so many patients, so many people through this COVID pandemic have lost grandparents and aunts and uncles and parents and children. And like, it's just been a, a really challenging time for so many. And so we have to start somewhere with like, who is that person that we can start to emotionally regulate? And then that person can help regulate some of the other folks in the lives and hopefully eventually help the children figure out how to cope with, with those losses. So I'm sitting here in my head thinking, okay, what would that conversation look like? And I'm wondering if it's, you know, and you'll have to fill in and and see if this makes sense, but sort of the, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, when other families that I've worked with have gone through and lost their husband or wife, this is really hard. And now your kid is sick in the hospital. What's that been like for you? Does that sort of a conversation that you might have? Do you use other language? Absolutely. I, I think that's that's key. I think sometimes before families need a physician, they need just a human being that like understands that like they're having the worst day of their life. And so sometimes again, because it's so fresh, you can sort of just just call things out and say, it seems like this would be a really challenging thing for somebody to go through and just sort of let them step into like telling you about that. Sometimes, as you said, the normalizing experience of, of saying, you know, unfortunately, we I've seen a lot of families that have gone through this. And sometimes parents feel X, Y, or Z about the way that this goes, or sometimes this particular aspect of the situation. And then just letting, and then, you know, is that something that you feel as well? Or have those kinds of thoughts come up in your mind as well? And and then just sort of giving them space. I think the other thing that we get uncomfortable with as physicians sometimes is silence. But I think some of the most meaningful encounters that I've had with families are just sort of allowing there to be a silence that I don't feel obligated to fill and sort of letting families take a minute to process. Like, again, I see this every day. I'm in the hospital every single day. And so I know what I need to say. I know how to counsel about bronchiolitis and croup and asthma. And like, I have my spiels all ready to go and and I, I give them. But sometimes in those moments, it's more about just sort of sitting there with the family and letting them take a few minutes to process and then express kind of what what their needs are. And that's where some of the most meaningful conversations can happen. And, and that's sort of the advantage of being a hospitalist is, is I'm there in the hospital most of the day. So I, I have more time with each individual patient than I do, say, when I'm on the primary care side and I'm having to kind of get through things a little bit quicker. You know, that's a an advantage that hospitalists sometimes have over their outpatient colleagues is that we have the ability to sit with a family for a little bit longer time, or we can leave and come back and sort of check in again periodically throughout the day. Uh, and, and that's certainly an advantage that that our outpatient colleagues don't have, or, or even that I don't have when I'm in the clinic, but just sort of trying to let that time happen and being comfortable with the silence so that parents can 
work through their feelings and kind of express what they need to express. Yeah, I think that's really an important point. And and it's something that I have to work on in all kinds of spaces, not just in the medical space, but this not feeling like you have to fill that void because it is uncomfortable to just sit and wait, but is so meaningful. And I think the other thing that you're talking about is building a safe, stable, nurturing relationship between you and the parent and the family so that they trust you. I remember my husband had some serious medical surgical things 10 years ago. And the most important thing that happened during all of that, and it was awful, was the surgeon came out. It was a middle of the night surgery. It was awful. And he sat, he had tears in his eyes and he just said, I'm so sorry that this has gone so you know, this has been so difficult. And honestly, after that, I would have trusted him to, and I did, to do anything because I I was like, God, this guy really cares. And that meant the world to me. But, you know, he sat, he listened, and he was empathetic. Yeah, it, it just comes back to sometimes we need to reassure the families that we are we are human too and that we care about the work that we're doing. And I think this is particularly important for pediatricians, right? We are given this blessing that very few people in the universe are given that parents bring us their children and they say here, like, you know how to make them better. And I don't, and I put them in your trusting care and we ought not lose sight of that. And so sometimes like crummy things happen. And I think that being able to sort of acknowledge that and talk about it and be upset about it, right? Like if you're running a code, that's not the time to, to cry. Like there are moments when you have to like kind of put your feelings down for a moment a short moment to get through whatever like emergency situation needs to be taken care of. But when, when crummy things happen or even when scary things happen and it turns out, okay, it's okay to acknowledge that. Like, man, this was, this was a really scary thing for all of us. And I can imagine as a parent that you probably felt whatever I'm feeling, you probably felt it even more than that. And so how can I help you with that. And again, it does come back to all of these skills that we want parents to demonstrate for their kids, safe, stable, nurturing relationship, talking about being an emotional container, talking about demonstrating emotional regulation. These are all things that we can model for families as well, whether it's when you're in a clinic encounter and the kid's bouncing around the room and you're maybe getting a little frustrated with that and parents are clearly getting frustrated with it as well, or in these sort of heavier moments in the hospital where emotions run high. And and I just, I feel strongly that it's okay to like be emotional with your families in a moment where that's appropriate, right? And to say like, I am so sorry that this has happened to you and for all of the things that you guys have been through over the last few days. Even if it's something as simple as like bronchiolitis comes in and they've been having difficulty with their breathing. And this mom has been so scared. They've been not sleeping for the last two days because they're so worried about their baby's breathing, right? Like we see bronchiolitis all the time. We know that with appropriate monitoring and, and intervention, the vast majority of these babies get better and they do fine. But just sort of acknowledging that like this is a scary thing as a parent to have to witness is meaningful to those parents and helps you build that trust and helps you build that relationship. So much. I'm I'm just sitting here thinking how lucky families and parents are to have you as an attending and to have have you sit with them in the clinic because you're so willing to be vulnerable and connect with them. And there's an acronym that comes to mind, HELP, that is offering hope, showing empathy, listening, 
and then asking permission when you need to embark on a, a, a journey with a family. And, and that kind of comes to mind. I did want to ask you a little bit about some of the other work that you're doing. And you and I have talked a lot about your kind of perspective on the role of fathers in the lives of children and their critical importance. And what have you seen in your clinic work? And talk a little bit about sort of how we might have overlooked dads. Yeah, I think it's it's challenging for a lot of reasons. It's a complex issue, but I think it's key for us to understand that fathers play a pivotal role in their kids' lives, just just as mothers do. I'll sort of throw in the the caveat here at the beginning that that nothing about the importance of fathers is is meant in any way to take away from the importance of mother. These these are two very very important people in the lives of of every child, and and so. I think as much as we can welcome fathers into the experience of of being a father and try to help that be a positive thing for them, I think that goes a long way. I, I've heard stories from dads in particular of sort of going to the pediatrician's office along with their partner and their kid, and they just sort of sit there in the corner and the pediatrician doesn't necessarily uh, sort of look at them or ask them any questions or anything. The history just all comes from the mom and and they kind of go on go on their way. And dad was like, I, I'm not even sure why I was here. And, and in some cases, especially in my patient population, right, some of these dads are either taking time off work to come into the clinic or they're, you know, they've worked all night and they're coming to the first morning appointment so that they can can be there and be actively involved in their kid's life. And then I don't know that we always as pediatricians do a good job of sort of welcoming them into that or, or asking about their experiences. So we're, we're really good for the most part with moms about screening for postpartum depression and talking to them about bonding and skin to skin and, and all these things kind of in those, those early days. But some of those questions are very relevant to dads as well. Like how is dad's relationship with the kid developing? How is dad doing skin to skin and bonding? And as they get older, talking, talking to both parents about, you know, development concerns and and all of these kinds of things. And and so much in, in pediatrics, I've heard it so many times, you know, resident will be presenting a history and they'll say, ah, well, the history is a little bit unclear. You know, dad's here. And that's sort of like given, hey, I've taken those histories and, and been frustrated with dads before of like, this is kind of basic stuff that that dads really ought to know. And that's that's part of what I'm hoping to do with some educational stuff that I'm working on, but also sort of offering to pediatricians and, and pediatric providers that we can maybe have a little grace for those dads who are, are maybe coming in post night shift or have other sort of challenges or, or roles that they're trying to fill within the family and maybe haven't gotten to be involved for a variety of reasons in the health of their children up to this point, but now have been sort of thrown into a situation where again, in the hospital, it's the worst day of their life. Their kid is in the hospital, very sick. And you're asking them like well, how many weeks gestation they were six years ago when they were born or like what the birth weight was. And like, he's still acutely traumatized from whatever reason he's in the hospital with his kid. And so I think those are the Christians and pediatric providers can be a little bit more aware of and, and maybe offer a little more grace in those scenarios. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. And, and you know, from what I hear you saying, it's dads need to be seen and heard and included. You know, they they need to feel like they're important. I know when I've had, you know, teenagers that come in and often with the moms, but, and especially if the families are, you know, they're not together, they're divorced or separated, you know, where I've tried to make a point of, you know, I, it would be really helpful for me to talk with your dad. Is that okay? 
And then to ask the dad, like, I want to make sure I hear your input. But, you know, we don't always do that. And I certainly don't do it as often as I I should have. But, you know, just seeing them in the room, I think, is important. Absolutely. I think welcoming dads into those encounters as often as possible, and especially in situations where the parents might be separated talking to kids and and teenagers in particular about their relationship with their fathers, just like you asked them about their relationship with with other parents, offer some interesting insight into some of the other challenges that 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 kid might be facing, depending on how acute the separation was, or if there were periods where they weren't able to be in touch with their dad as often as they might have liked, or if they still don't have any contact with their dad, even that is a relevant piece of information to have. And so I think just trying to include dads in the conversation as much as you can, as long as it's not sort of an acutely traumatizing conversation for the child, I think is going to only offer you benefit and allow you to sort of develop a deeper relationship with that family and with that with that adolescent that you're talking to. Yeah, it, I think it really does try and create that, I guess it's sort of a, a net, you know, the family or gather the family around you that those safe, stable, nurturing relationships can and and should be, you know, all the parents' caregivers, you know, the more the merrier. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about your project and your podcast that you've created called Docs to Dads. And, you know, who's your audience and, and what are your hopes for this podcast? Sure. Yeah. So the Docs to Dads podcast sort of arose. It's kind of always been a dream of mine. I'm very lucky to have such a supportive wife. And a few years ago, even pre-COVID, I sort of bore my soul to her as like this idea that I wanted to to develop to kind of help dads. And she's wonderful and was so supportive and was like, yes, you should go and definitely do that. And so it's kind of this thing I was like putting together some topic lists and just kind of thinking about what it would look like. And then as we transitioned into COVID, we were sort of just in survival mode for a long time. And then as we came into 2020, uh, just really overwhelmed by things that were going on in my own life and and at work and frustration with the way things are being handled locally and, and more globally related to COVID, just all the all the things that we're seeing in the hospital, you know, challenges with school for kids and challenges with mental health for kids, which you've covered so extensively on this podcast and, and has been such a light uh, during this time as well. And I really needed something else to focus my energy on that was sort of within my realm of control. And so I sort of reopened the Docs to Dads podcast and decided this was a thing that I I needed to be able to really brought me to a much better place sort of personally. And I, I'm hoping that this podcast, it's primarily designed for dads, will sort of help give them the tools in their toolbox to be that safe, stable, nurturing relationship that we've been talking about through this episode. And, and I think that the other challenge with the way that dads are perceived in the medical community and in society at large is that a lot of us weren't taught or even exposed to like, how do we do things like teach our kids to read or teach them colors and numbers? And even in my own relationship as a pediatrician myself, I feel like I have an unfair advantage over most dads. And even in my own relationship, my wife, the like creative things that she comes up with to like navigate our children's sort of meltdowns that might happen or like help teach them sort of creative concepts. I'm just like in awe of like, where did you come up with that? And she's like, oh, this is just like something we always did in my family. 
And it's just like not something I was ever exposed to. And so I think trying to just build that tool belt of practical skills for dads as much as possible with an eye towards building that toolbox of teaching them, how do I be that emotional container for my kids? How do I be that safe, stable, nurturing relationship for my kids and the other kids in in my life so that I can be an active participant in their growth and development and their health and well-being, I think is is really what I'm I'm geared on. And it's being packaged in a way that's sort of like PEDS 101 for dads. So like, what do I need to worry about when I first find out that my partner is pregnant? What's going to happen when we go to the hospital? What are the first six weeks look like? How much formula or or milk does my baby need? How much should they be sleeping? How do I keep them safe? Like all of these little details that dads just haven't always been taught and sort of how to be that sort of positive, engaged presence. I think this is particularly important because this has gotten acutely worse during COVID as well, but so many of us are in families now that are sort of siloed off from either our extended family or from from the larger community. And so there's so much more pressure being put on parents in the home now to do all of these things. And certainly we already put so much pressure on moms to be everything to everyone all the time. And so if I can sort of help dads feel confident that they can do some of these things effectively and be a better father for their kids and be a better partner for their partner and and be supportive in that way. I think that's another place that I hope my podcast can make a difference for, for the dads out there. I love this so much. And I think like you, I have had a very supportive spouse. I mean, I think it's the only way I could have gotten through, you know, residency and practice and having two kids because he was you know, the primary person a lot of the time. And I actually did a podcast with my kids and, you know, he's a very important person to them because of that. I mean, it happened by default because it was just the way, you know, our family ran, but I'm really grateful that he had that, you know, um, he kind of had to step in. But uh, I was wondering when you're talking about And I don't know if it's something that you'll touch on on the podcast, but you mentioned about how hard things have been during COVID for families. And especially when there's anger, maybe violence, you know, that intimate partner violence, which can go both ways. Is that something that you'll delve into just sort of about anger management, that kind of thing? In relationships, all sort of emotional regulation is such an important piece of that. And, And anger management, I think, is key component of emotional regulation, right? Part of what we're, when we say emotional regulation, really a lot of times what we're teaching our kids in particular is sort of when you're feeling angry, what do you do with that? And certainly it also applies to when we're feeling particularly sad. Those are sort of the the major emotions that we we talk about needing to be regulated. So that's certainly a key component of that. And we know that parents can't effectively teach their children how to regulate their emotions if they can't do it themselves. And so Certainly, I, th- I think when we get to talking about emotional regulation and how do I manage tantrums and how do I manage um, things like discipline, for example, within the context of a father's relationship with their children, we'll certainly talk about that. Certainly, we discourage you know, corporal punishment slash hitting your children for any reason, even if you think it is um, disciplinary, because there are now we know uh, much more effective ways to impart that message to them. But again, this is another scenario where what dads were taught as kids or what dads might have experienced as kids 
is different now. It probably wasn't actually different then, but certainly we we have different expectations now when it comes to that. And then certainly we'll, we'll certainly talk a little bit about sort of anger management and intimate partner violence in that context as well. It's a hard topic, but I also wonder in those circumstances, how many of those, you know, perpetrators of intimate partner violence may have had their own trauma. My guess is that's probably fairly significant. You know, of course, things like substance use get in there too, but I'm guessing that substance use, a lot of that has to do with trauma. So a lot of it funnels back our experiences. Yeah, generational trauma plays such a huge role in all of the ways that we interact with people and for parents are our parents. And so sometimes we have good examples and sometimes we have bad examples. And if we recognize that our bad examples were bad, then that gives us something maybe to go away from. But you can't replace bad habits with no habits. You have to replace bad habits with good habits. And so that's another place that I hope that my podcast and and other resources can be beneficial to parents. Because if you were raised in a home where you were hit when you misbehaved, for example, then just not hitting is doesn't feel sufficient. You need to have some other, like, what am I going to do instead of hitting? And so that's sort of the part where I hope we can make some movement. And that's how we really uh, generate positive change and, and break that cycle of generational trauma, not by saying like, that is a bad thing. And instead we should do this good thing that actually benefits the development and, and the growth of our, our kids and allows them to regulate their emotions more effectively, allows parent bad thing with a good thing instead, rather than just saying, no, don't do that bad thing. Right. Well, it's kind of a, I think there's a lot of, I'm sure, shame in some of those things. And you don't want someone to feel shame because they're not likely to change behavior. But I think, and I wonder too, if, you know, dad to dad having that conversation is really powerful and, you know, might really connect with those fathers. And I I love that you're doing this podcast. I think it, it fills a, a big need out there. And, you know, so I'm thinking, you know, you're a dad too, and, and you're a busy guy. I mean, you're doing lots of work and there's lots of demand. So, how do you kind of take care of yourself? How do you find time for yourself and your family? I'm not always sure that there's this actual reality of work-life balance because I think sometimes it's work and sometimes it's life, but how do you navigate all that? I think that's a, a nice transition to like one last point I want to make about that is is sometimes when we talk about this, we make it sound very like simple and straightforward and it's just, it's not and it's hard and especially if you've been exposed to those traumas repeatedly, you know, breaking that cycle is hard and it, that should be stated. And like a lot of people struggle with this. So if you're somebody out there who's listening, who was hit as a child and now have fallen into that habit, even if you know it's not the right thing to do, I encourage you to, to find some resources here that you're not alone and it's not an easy thing to do to break these cycles. And so if you're committed to being the person who breaks that cycle in your own family, I commend you. I think that's the most wonderful thing that you can do. And don't feel like any one failure makes you a complete failure. Like there are things that you can do to keep going because we make this sound so simple and straightforward. Like, oh, just regulate your emotions, right? As if that's like, just like a button that you can push, but like we're not robots, right? You don't necessarily, I mean, that's just such a nice and validating thing to say, Scott. I I really appreciate you pointing that out. I mean, I came from a childhood that there was a lot of, a lot of that, and I know it's why I do what I do. And fortunately, 
I, I worked really hard not to follow that path, but you know, I, no, I think, think just, just being real about it is important. Well, I, I really, really appreciate you bringing that up. Thank you so much. Yeah. And then I think just going back to your time, I, your original question, sorry, about, about sort of work-life balance. I, I really like more the phrase work-life integration. Like I'm sort of doing everything all the time. And I think that's real life. It's very much like juggling. And one of the, I, I should look up who said this so that I can attribute them appropriately. But one of the things that I always appreciated was I heard a, an analogy once of of work life is sort of like juggling. And more important than sort of keeping all the balls in the air is knowing which balls are glass balls and which balls are rubber balls. Um, and the glass <laughs> balls are the ones that you should make sure that you don't ever drop. And the rubber balls are the ones that are like, it's okay if you drop them every once in a while, you can always pick them back up and get them back into the rotation. And I I like that image because it, it sort of reminds me like, what are the most important things in, in my life and sort of bringing it back around to that. So at the end of the day, being... A husband to my wife is the most important thing that I do each day. Being a husband or being a father to my children is, you know, one, one B with that. Right. And then from there, sort of how do I take care of, of myself and my physical health? It's been a, a journey that I've been on personally and be covered in the podcast probably at some point. Uh, I've turned into a runner, which is never a thing that I thought I would say. So I enjoy running, but learning how to run in Michigan has been very different than running in Arizona. Uh, so I've had to sort of shift around so that I'm not, I, I can't wake up at 5 a.m. and go run in the snow in Michigan like I used to do when I was in in Arizona when I had to beat the sun uh, to get a good run in. So, you know, you just sort of adjust those habits a little bit. I'm a person of faith. And so spending some time each day in sort of prayer and quiet reflection is something that I try to make time for each morning. So that's usually something that I'm trying to beat my kids awake in the morning to be able to do, which uh, sometimes I do successfully and sometimes I don't. And then having the grace for myself too to say like, eh, that didn't happen. I just need to find, you know, 20 minutes later in the day where I can sort of, sort of sneak this in. So now I'm somebody that uh, I've benefited greatly from the transition to all of our meetings being on Zoom because now frequently what I'll do is I'll bring my running clothes to work and I'll run over during my lunch hour. Um, outside and and listen to the Zoom calls in my headphones and then just sort of stop and walk if I need to make a point in a meeting or something, being able to sort of multitask in that way, but still be able to get out and, and move my body has been really good. And then I think just finding the joy in my family and finding the joy in my in my kids, which can sometimes be challenging, but that's one of the big pushes that I have for for the podcast is just helping dads and helping parents find that joy and sort of intentionally normalizing saying good things about your spouse and saying good things about your children because that's not something that you always hear from parents and from from spouses and so uh, again I'm very fortunate to have a great partner my wife is amazing and I'm really thankful for her and and her support of everything that that I do and this life that we're building together and I think that that also helps me in terms of remembering sort of what are those glass balls and what are the rubber balls that is a great analogy. I, I think that that's perfect way to look at like, what are those things that you just have to honor? Um, keep that in front of mind. Well, my final question for you is what I ask all my guests is if you were going to go back and talk to yourself when you were a resident and give yourself some advice, what would it be? I think this is probably the most common piece of advice that I give even now. And it really comes down to, as you go through the process of figuring out what you want to be when you grow up, if you'll pardon the sort of pediatric cliche there, 
every decision that you make in terms of like, where should I go to medical school? What should I do for residency? Where should I go for residency? Need to do fellowship. Like all of these decisions death, like if you make the wrong decision, you're going to like put yourself on a path towards doom and despair. And it really just isn't that way for a variety of reasons. And one is my faith that like people can find, you know, a positive, happy outcome with whatever decision that you make. And and certainly you want to make a decision that you feel like puts you in the best possible scenario. But also most of these decisions can be undone and maybe you lose a year or maybe you lose a couple of years along the way. And that's not nothing. I don't, I don't mean to minimalize that, but it really is not this sort of like life or death situation. Sometimes residents will tell me like, oh, I wish I had a crystal ball and I could just see into the future and know what I was supposed to do. I try to discourage that mindset because it sort of implies that there's a right decision and a wrong decision, where in reality, as with so many things, there's like hundreds of right ways. And as long as you can remember, like, what are those most important things? What are those glass balls that you need to take care of as you're juggling everything? As long as you're sort of keeping focused on those, then there are probably dozens of choices, at least, that you could make that would all lead you to a happy, positive outcome. And so these decisions all feel very life or death, high stakes, but they're not to the degree that that we often feel them in real time. And I just remember agonizing over every one of those decisions in a way that now I wish maybe I, I hadn't done. Well, I think that that's good advice at any point in your life. And I think back, I broke my match. I had I had matched to University of Wisconsin in Madison and broke that match and I got into so much trouble. I had to take a year off as kind of punishment. And yeah, it was really hard. But, you know, it for me, it was the right decision. It was super painful. But yeah, I think you're right that this is, life has twists and turns and there's no way to know what's coming. And you you just have to be agile and and know that you just do one thing at a time. So... Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate your insights. And I think it's super exciting what you're doing for dads. And I want to make sure that listeners check that out and we'll put the links. And yeah, yeah. I thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Leah, for having me on the show. I really enjoyed this and, and have been such a big fan of your podcast from the very beginning. And, and I'm very honored to get to be a part of it. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Take care and have a great day. Thank you. You too. What a great conversation. And I really appreciate Dr. Grant's interest in fathers and how important they are in children's lives. So here are my takeaways. Number one, the awareness of adverse childhood experiences was an aha for Dr. Grant. This was a moment where he was able to connect the dots to what has happened to a child and how that impacts everything downstream. Number two, Watch Nadine Burke Harris's TED Talk. It's amazing. Number three, toxic stress is unbuffered stress. It impacts us down to our DNA. Number four, adverse events can become tolerable if they are buffered by safe, stable, nurturing relationships, and it changes everything. If you're interested in this topic, check out episode number 56 with Dr. Andy Garner for more on toxic stress and resilience. Number five, for Dr. Grant in the hospital setting, he is able to connect with families by keeping top of mind that for the patient and the family, this is the worst day and the worst fear of their lives. Number six, 
In that space, he can help parents regulate their own emotions by normalizing the experience, that this is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Number seven, Dr. Grant created the Docs to Dads podcast because he wanted dads to be welcomed in and supported. Many dads do not get the same parenting training that mothers do. Even what seems straightforward, like reading to a child or creating activities, may seem out of the sphere of their experience. Dr. Grant wants to connect with them where they are, dad to dad, and build their skills. So check out the podcast. Number eight, his work is not to minimize mom's roles, but to uplift dads. They matter to kids, even when they are not there, maybe even more so. Number nine, sometimes the connections are in the silence, the pause where you can give space to a parent to be honored. We are not obligated to fill the space. That is definitely a growth edge for me. Number 10, we can learn to be emotional containers for our parents' fear, anger, and confusion and model that for them. We can be emotional containers for our own kids and for ourselves. Number 11, his advice on work-life integration versus balance is like juggling both glass and rubber balls. You just have to keep the glass balls, family, self, faith, purpose in the air and let some of the others bounce. And just make sure you know the difference between which ones are which. I think that's a brilliant metaphor. I love it so much. Listen, please take care of yourselves. And I hope that you are enjoying time with your friends and your family, finding a moment for self-care, nurturing, breathing, and just closing your eyes for a minute. If you can, get a chance, walk outside and just look up and experience nature for a few minutes. It's hard on a really cold day, but it can help ground you and help deal with some of the difficult moments. Take care, and I'll look forward to you joining me next week. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review. It really is helpful and I think the guests are just so brilliant. And if you can help me be able to engage other listeners, I would be ever so grateful. I also want to mention that Pediatric Meltdown was listed in one of the top 20 pediatric podcasts by Feedspot. And I hope that you'll share this with your friends. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.